Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 133. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 133. <clears throat> before, we, uh, before we read that, why don't we pray together? Please pray with me. Father, we come to you because we long to hear from you. We long to hear your word. Uh, we long to uh, know your truth. We long to draw, draw near to you uh, through your son, Jesus. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to these ends, uh, that, that, we would, that we would be able to hear and understand and believe and be changed by what we read in the scriptures. Uh, we pray that you would do this work by your Holy Spirit in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 133. It's a psalm about unity. All of us, I think, have experienced some kind of, of brokenness of unity in life, some kind of disunity in our relationships. Uh, and of course, that's true even in the church at times, maybe sometimes especially in the church. There are so many different aspects to biblical unity, um, unity versus disunity. There's true unity versus a, a counterfeit. Uh, there's a righteous unity versus a sinful kind of unity. Uh, there's a life-giving unity versus a soul-destroying one. Uh, not only that, but w when we get down to it, right, unity, true, righteous, life-giving unity is, is hard and challenging. It requires effort and, of course, grace upon grace. I'm obviously not going to be able to talk about all of these things this morning, uh, but Psalm 133 understood in light of the cross and the resurrection, I think, lays the foundation for understanding Christian unity. Uh, now, some of you may be wondering, uh, Luke, why are you preaching on Psalm 133 this morning? We're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. Uh, well, the answer is actually complicated, but the short answer is, I was on a pastor's retreat this past week, and I thought being with a group of fellow pastors, it would be a good opportunity to meditate on Psalm 133 and a psalm about brothers dwelling in unity. And, and, and I've wanted to preach on Psalm 133 for some time. Uh, there's something so simple about this little psalm. It's just three tiny little verses. Um, and yet when you look at the imagery, it, it's actually kind of odd. Um, so I thought, yeah, let, let's do that. <laughs> so Psalm 133 uh, is what we're going to talk about. We're going to ask four questions about unity. You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, four questions. Why should we want it? How do we get it? What does it look like? And why is it so important? Um, 
we'll flesh, of course, this out as we go. But before we start, I should give at least a working definition of unity. Um, unity is essentially a kind of, of oneness. And uh, someone has said it's, it's a oneness of heart and mind around the truth. So that's, that, that'll be our, our working definition, at least. As we go, we'll sort of develop that a little bit and maybe put some flesh on that in certain ways. But um, unity is a oneness of heart and mind around the truth. Um, unity, of course, is what God wanted for humanity from the beginning. Uh, when God created Adam, he said it is not good that man should be alone. Uh, he created woman. And the first two human beings were joined together in what the Bible calls one flesh. And, uh, of course, while not all human beings are joined to one another in the marriage union, uh, unity, togetherness, oneness was meant to characterize the human race. Uh, and it did for a minute. Uh, but that unity didn't last long, uh, not for Adam and Eve. Uh, the, the advent of sin brought shame and hiding and blame and discord. Uh, it wasn't any better for the first actual brothers, Cain and Abel. Uh, there was no love there. Uh, the earth, uh, as you read through Genesis, quickly descends into violence and chaos. God sends a flood. After the flood, you have discord among the brothers of Noah. Uh, the, the, there's a kind of unity at the Tower of Babel, uh, but it's unity in sin and not in righteousness. And so God breaks that up as well. Uh, God chooses Abraham. But his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, are characterized by contention. Maybe Isaac's sons would be better. Well, Jacob steals his brother's blessing and must run for his life, lest his brother kill him. Uh, Jacob's sons, well, they hate their brother Joseph so much, they throw him into a well and then sell him into slavery. Uh, Israel's track record for unity is not that good. Finally, at the Exodus, uh, after a few hundred years of slavery, God's people are ready to play nice. Uh, but even here, jealousy and internal division are always just below the surface. Uh, once they get into the land, actually, disunity abounds, right? In Judges, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you may know the book of Judges ends in civil war, brother against brother. Uh, during the life of David, the people are divided between Saul, the acting king of Israel, and David, the anointed king of Israel. Almost never is there this kind of unity pictured in this psalm. Israel's history is more characterized by jealousy and infighting than it is unity. The, the, the natural, uh, fallen state of humanity seems to be discord, not unity. And this is where our text comes in, because Psalm 133 is a kind of apologetic for unity. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So this brings us to our first question, why should we want it? Why should we want unity? Um, well, you might ask, well, what are, what are the options? Uh, various kinds of disunity. Those, those are the options. Uh, there's conflict on the one hand. There's isolation on the other. Uh, if conflict sees people as enemies to be defeated, isolation sees people as obstacles to be avoided. True unity, of course, is going to include room uh, both for disagreement and opportunities for solitude. But some of us live lives that are characterized by conflict or isolation, which are not, uh, not the same thing as simple disagreement and solitude. 
where do you find yourself on that scale as you think about it? Uh, are you an a, adrenaline junkie who likes to fight, <laughs> likes the argument, um, or maybe a loner who prefers peace and quiet? Either way, the, the hard work of unity may not sound appetizing to you. Here's the message of Psalm 133. Whether you're comfortable with conflict or prefer isolation, desire unity, for it is pleasant. Both of these words, good and pleasant, in verse 1, speak of, of the delightfulness of unity. Uh, good is what God declared the world to be in the beginning. Uh, and it can mean good, it can mean agreeable, pleasant, beautiful to the eye, sweet to the taste. So both of these words, really, good and pleasant, speak of delight. Unity is desirable because it is pleasant. Now, the very fact that the psalmist says this hints at the fact that he knows disunity. He knows how hard unity can be, and, and he has to encourage us toward unity with the carrot, right? It's, it's delightful. It's enjoyable. There's pleasure to be found there. Psalm says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. By brothers, it, it means fellow Israelites, uh, God's people, God's covenant people, um, this, by the way, is one of the Psalms of Ascent, which means it was one of the Psalms that the pilgrims would sing as they were headed up to Jerusalem for the yearly festivals. Uh, it was a Psalm that they would sing as they were gathering together to rejoice in God's work of salvation. And, uh, you know, maybe they were hoping that as they crammed into relative, relatives' houses in Jerusalem on these holy days, that, that, that it would be a delight. Of course, as we all know uh, about holidays, they're often not a delight, uh, but a disaster. So they're singing these psalms as they head up to Jerusalem, hoping for uh, a delightful time with their brothers as they celebrate what God had done for them. Again, when you think about community, when you think about the community of God's people, when you think about the church gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ, is your first thought, oh, the joy, or oh, the hassle? Here's the promise of Scripture, right? As you commit yourself to unity, as you commit yourself to the church and to the people of God, it will be sweet to your taste. I'm not saying it will be easy, but that it will be sweet, a delight, maybe even one of those hard-won pleasures. So why should we want unity? Well, God first appeals to our hearts. He appeals to our affections. It says, desire unity, for it is a delight. Okay, how do we get it? Uh, the, the short answer, of course, to that question is, is you, you pray for it, because unity is a gift. Uh, but there are lots of ways that we try to manufacture it. Uh, inevitably, what we come up with, of course, is not unity, but some fleshly counterfeit of, of sameness. Um, Unity is, is when different people unite in heart and mind around the truth. Sameness almost uh, re removes the need for unity. Um, the, the counterfeit either involves denying our differences on the one hand or, dis or dictating uniformity on the other. Uh, it, it, interestingly, both of those uh, two different ways define unity the same, as not as oneness, but as sameness. Uh, we can achieve sameness either by denying that there are any meaningful differences I mean, we all basically believe the same thing, right? Or by demanding uniformity. And it's tempting to take one of these two roads. 
Uh, if we have a church, if we as a church deny that there are meaningful differences, right, we can claim unity with anyone, right? We're all, we're all basically the same. And there is a truth there. Uh, the, the truth is all humanity shares a general human condition. Since we share it, there's a kind of unity. By nature, we're all in Adam, the Bible says. We share that condition. And yet, clearly, that truth has not brought meaningful unity to the human race. And so maybe we go the other route, not living in denial, but uh, as a dictator, demanding uniformity. And this way, too, is bankrupt, right? Because while living in denial ignores the individual, uh, demanding uniformity tends to destroy the individual. Again, no unity if you don't have individuals to unite. Um, the reason we go those directions, though, is because these are kinds of unity that we can manufacture. Right? This is what we can do in our own strength. We can ignore meaningful differences, or we can demand conformity to our way of doing things. The problem is, fundamentally, unity is not something we manufacture. It is a gift. This is where we come to these uh, images in verses 2 and 3, where the psalmist says that unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Uh, what, what do we learn from these images? Uh, the first thing I think that we learn is that unity is something that descends. Uh, it, uh, three times the word came down is repeated. It's, it's not quite clear in, in English, but uh, three times uh, oil comes down on the beard, down on the collar of Aaron's robe, and then the dew of Hermon falls down on the mountains of Zion. Uh, the fact that, that blessings descend is central to these images, to this imagery that the psalmist un, uh, uses. So unity as a blessing of God descends from him. Um, second, unity is supernatural. Uh, Mount Hermon is a mountain in the far north of Israel. Uh, Mount Zion, of course, is in Jerusalem. What that means is that there's really no way that the dew from Mount Hermon can fall on the mountains of Zion 120 miles south. Uh, and so commentators have kind of puzzled over this, like, well, what do we, what do, we do with this image? doesn't seem to make sense. And so they, they say, well, maybe it's talking about a different Mount Hermon, or maybe it's talking about a different Mount Zion, or maybe Mount Hermon was well known for its dew, and so it's, the psalmist is saying the dew that falls on Mount Zion is like the great dew that falls on Mount Hermon. Uh, but I think probably the best explanation that I've heard is the impossibility. The impossibility of the dew from Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion is precisely the point. Uh, it will take a supernatural act of God for the dew from Mount Hermon to fall on Mount Zion. And unity is like that, a supernatural act of God. Where you find unity, you find something incredible happening. Uh, third, notice that that here, unity is spiritual. And by spiritual, uh, I mean unity is of the Spirit, capital S, right? Unity is of the Spirit. Uh, the anointing oil that consecrated Aaron as the high priest was a sign of God's Spirit consecrating Aaron as high priest. The oil was a sign of the presence and the power and the appointment of the Spirit of God. Uh, dew also uh, was a sign of God's Spirit in a, in a region with regular uh, drought seasons. Uh, dew kept the vegetation alive. Uh, was considered a gift, a blessing, a sign of God's favor. And we think of God's Spirit at work, of course, in salvation and redemption, which makes sense. But in Scripture, God's Spirit is also at work in nature, 
especially as a part of God's blessings on his people. It's God's spirit who gives life and breath to all the animals of the earth, according to Psalm 104, and renews the face of the ground. And in Isaiah 44, God compares the spirit to the, to the life-giving waters. He says, for I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So, so the life-giving dew, therefore, is, is both an effect and consequently a sign of, of the spirit's presence and work. And so we have these two images of oil and dew, both of which put us in mind of the work of God's spirit, blessing and giving life. So unity, it descends as a gift from God, like oil on the head or dew falling uh, from the sky. It's a supernatural work of God, and it's spiritual, meaning that it's an effect and sign of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, finally here, though, the, maybe the most important thing to say is that unity is covenantal. Uh, we have these two images, and I think they're there to clarify and kind of reinforce one another. One of the interesting aspects uh, or features of both of them is that both, of course, have a, a, a liquid being poured out or descending from something greater to something lesser, as it were. And, and so you have the oil on Aaron's head, which descends onto his beard and his robe, uh, from the head to the members, we might say. Uh, then you have this kind of magic dew, <laughs> uh, which descends from the, 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 this great mountain in the north, the tallest mountain in the region, down to the smaller mountains, the mountains of Zion. And so you have this blessing coming from the greater to the, to the lesser. And, and when you kind of peer into uh, this imagery, you notice the picture that's being described here with Aaron is, is the anointing of Aaron, which took place in the wilderness, when the 12 tribes were actually united, right, just after the Exodus. God's blessing on Aaron, his anointing him as a priest, would indeed have been a blessing on all of God's people. Aaron represented God's people before God. In fact, you may remember the names of the 12 tribes were actually written on stones attached to his robe. So when he was anointed, they were anointed in him. So Aaron, as this high priest, intercedes on behalf of the people. He makes an atonement on behalf of the people. So Aaron's work enabled God's presence in the midst of the people without sort of just simply instant death by holiness. And uh, Aaron's anointing is a blessing for all of God's people. Aaron, an anointed one. In Hebrew, uh, the word is Messiah. Blessing descends uh, from the Messiah to the people. It's interesting to note this psalm is written by David, and you may uh, wonder, well, when did David write this psalm? Uh, David's life was characterized by discord, much of it. Uh, but there were a few moments of, of unity where he might have written it. One likely possibility was when he was anointed as king. Uh, it was after a long period of division in Israel, but the Israelites came together to anoint David as their king. Uh, this would have been a time of great unity within the nation, uh, much like the time when Aaron was anointed high priest. Now, once again, Israel is united, though this time not around Moses or Aaron, but around David the king. See, finally, there is a king in Israel. And rather than civil war, as in the book of Judges, uh, we have unity. David also uh, was anointed with oil, right? So he also uh, is an anointed one, a Messiah. He unifies the nation. He brings the unity that God intended. Yet if you know the story, you also know that that doesn't last. David sins, and God promises the sword will not depart from his house. Solomon, David's son, turns to the idols of the nation, the combined result of their sins, 
is that the nation is divided once again in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So again, we descend back into division. Uh, enter Jesus into that. Uh, Jesus comes to his own, but his own did not receive him. He too was rejected by his brothers, the people of Israel. Like Joseph, Jesus' brothers sold him into the hands of the Gentiles. Uh, this time, the Jewish ruling council hands Jesus over to Pilate, who puts him to death. Also like Joseph, when things seem as bad as could be, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the ruler, but this time not Pharaoh, but God himself. Jesus is raised up as king. He's exalted like David as the king of Israel, as the anointed one, as God's Messiah. And Jesus, as the anointed one, is raised up to the highest place. And he receives the fullness of the Spirit in his ascension. And from that place of exaltation, he pours out the Spirit on his people, ultimately both Jew and Gentile alike, creating from the two one new people united in Christ. They've received the same Spirit, and so they're part of the same body. As Israel was united before God through their, their Messiah, Aaron, uh, as Israel again was united before God through the anointed David, in the same way our unity comes from our anointed one, our Messiah, Jesus. God's anointing spirit was first given to him in his ascension, and then he pours out the spirit at Pentecost, that we might all be one as he, our God, is one. And here's the, the real point of, of all of this, is all of these details, as complicated as they may be, the, the point's actually quite simple. The point is that we cannot manufacture unity. Uh, we, we, we must not bring about conformity, nor ought we to ignore differences, but Christ, by his Spirit, can unify us, a diverse people from every tribe and tongue and nation in himself. Right? He can make us one in ways that, that we couldn't possibly imagine. So why should we desire unity? Because it's a delight. Where does it come from? It, it, it descends to us as a gift from Jesus, the Messiah, by his spirit. If we're trying to manufacture it through denial or dictatorship, we need to, we need to stop that. And rather, we, we pray for it until it descends as a gift from Jesus. Third, what does it look like? What does this unity actually look like? Uh, well, unity comes from the spirit. Uh, the spirit of the resurrected Jesus. And so uh, there's actually, there's, there's an objective element to it and a subjective element to it. Um, objectively, there, there's one spirit and one body, Scripture says. Uh, as we by faith trust in Christ and receive the gift of the spirit, um, that, that spirit is given to the people, one spirit, one body. Um, and so there's, a, there's an objective oneness to who we are in Christ. Um, our unity is, again, it's objective because it's in Christ by the Spirit. That's not something that can be taken away. Uh, no matter how much discord is in the church, we might fight and quarrel and bicker, but we're actually still one in Christ because we are in the same body, having received the same Spirit. And, of course, if you look at any family, honestly, when they're not looking, when they don't know you're watching, uh, brothers and sisters squabble. Uh, they're no less brothers and sisters. While humanity, of course, uh, humanly speaking, the, the human family uh, can be pretty fragile, that's not the case in Christ because we have one spirit, objective unity. It's not an organizational unity per se. It's not merely theological, uh, nor is it commercial or economic unity. It's, it's not a unity that we can manufacture in any way. It's a unity in the spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We are united to one another in Christ. 
And yet there's a subjective side to this too, isn't there? Um, we, we are now to walk in the Spirit, according to the New Testament. Uh, we have been given the Spirit. We are one in Christ. Now we're to act like we are one in Christ. Um, what does that subjective living out of unity look like? What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Um, well, we have received the Spirit of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Crucified, then resurrected. How are we now to live as people who have received the Spirit of the crucified and resurrected Christ? Well, we're to take up our cross and follow Him. The Spirit enables us, as the Spirit enabled Jesus through His baptism to take up His cross, the Spirit enables us to take up our cross, to humble ourselves, deny ourselves, and serve one another in the hope of future exaltation. Think about it, what hinders unity probably more than anything else? Um, it's our own egos, our pride, our, our self-promotion, our desire to prove ourselves, to be on top, to be number one. And as we receive the Spirit and as we learn to, to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we begin to deny ourselves and to serve one another. And we do that not because uh, we don't value exaltation. Actually, um, we do that. We humble ourselves that God might exalt us at the proper time. It's not because we don't value praise. It's because we don't value the praise of men, but rather the praise of God. We want to hear his well done, good and faithful servant. That will be our exaltation on the last day. When we hear the Father's well done. We know Right? We know because of the cross. We know that humiliation comes before exaltation. We know that the cross comes before the crown, that service comes before honor, that being last comes before being first. And so we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. We serve one another uh, in love. That's the subjective side right, of this unity. The unity we want to express as a body of Christ, it's not merely economic or commercial or organizational. Um, the unity we want to express is not merely theological even. It is theological, of course. Uh, we're united around the gospel. We're united around the truth. We are united by our common faith in Jesus and the, the same Jesus at that, right? Uh, if I believe in Jesus, the God-man, who was delivered up for our sins to make atonement, which I do, and, uh, and you believe in Jesus, who's just a good moral teacher, there's no unity in that. But though unity is around the truth, believing the same things in itself is not unity. Um, there is a confessional unity that is important, but it's not sufficient. Uh, think about it. How does the New Testament describe unity? Uh, Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? That's what unity looks like, it, having one mind and one heart around Christ. It looks like the one another's of Scripture, right? You know the one another's of Scripture, love one another, live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another, instruct one another, wait for one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, build one another up, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, 
show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And again and again and again, love one another. To unity in the Spirit is, is this profoundly cross-centered thing where we take up our cross and follow Jesus, where we deny ourselves and give of ourselves for the good of one another. And so this unity in the Spirit that we have been given by Christ has this objective side, this subjective side, right? We've been given one Spirit, so baptized into one body. And now we must walk in that Spirit by taking up our cross and following Jesus, putting the needs of others before our own. All right, last question. Why is this so important? Um, of course, there's this sort of existential reason, which we've seen already. Unity is a delight, a joy. Um, there is an evangelistic reason that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John that, that unity, our unity has to do with our witness. Uh, but here in Psalm 133, there's this, bigger reason almost than either of those. Uh, there's an eternal reason, right, that unity has to do with eternal life. Uh, the very last sentence of the psalm, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, David says, a brother's dwelling in unity, there God has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Um, this means at, at least a couple of things. First, he says there, meaning in the context of the, the gathered covenant community, the gathered family of Abraham, in the context of the church. There, as we begin to experience unity, we begin to experience the fullness of life. Unity is, is the beginnings of eternal life. Uh, it's also, uh, therefore, second, a, a foretaste of it, an anticipation of it. We get a little taste of it here in the context of the body. But guess what it will look like on the day of resurrection? Uh, guess what eternal life will look like? It's not going to look like me and Jesus floating in the clouds. Eternal life will look like the community of God's people dwelling together before him in perfect harmony. That is what eternal life will be. Eternal life is not simply long life. It's not simply a quality of life that now resides in me, though it is both of those things. But eternal life, life forevermore, is something that is realized in the community as we fulfill God's intention from the start, that man would not be alone. God's goal was a community of people that would know him and love him, and as a result, love one another. That is eternal life. That's the picture that we're given here in Psalm 133. So why should we want unity? It's a, it's a delight. Uh, how do we get it? Well, it, it descends from Christ by his spirit. And so first and foremost, pray for it. Seek Jesus for it. What does it look like? Well, it's, it's objective, right? There's one spirit, one body, but there's also this subjective element as we walk in the spirit, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Why is it important? Because unity is the beginnings of eternal life. It's a foretaste of things to come. So pursue it. Right? Pursue unity in Christ by the spirit. Beg Christ for his spirit that we may be one as a church. Love one another as Christ loved you, and it will be pleasant to your soul and a foretaste of things to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess how, how difficult it is often to dwell together, much less dwell together in unity. We need you. We need your spirit, Jesus. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. We thank you that you have 
poured out your spirit, that you have united us to yourself and so united us to one another. But we pray that you would continue to fill us with your spirit, that we would walk in a manner pleasing to you as we love one another in a way that reflects your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.